Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodechicago.com. We're spending a lot of time this year in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, in a couple weeks, we'll take a break for a little bit, but um, we, we really choose to do this slow walk through the Gospel of Luke because we long as a community to be a community to be formed in the way of Jesus, watching his actions, listening to his words, learning from his living witness and his teachings. And so one of the things that we've been doing is taking the portions of scripture intentionally slowly because we want to really sit in them. And some of us, wherever you are in knowledge of the Bible, if you don't have a Bible, please come find me after. I think there might even be a link in the Uh, QR code. We'd love to help find the right fit for you. So if you've never read the Bible, that's cool. We can help. But if you have been reading the Bible for a while, some of these stories can become really familiar. And even in this, as we see as an example, Luke kind of tees up what the lesson is even supposed to be. And so we can kind of breeze by quickly. But what we want to do is slow down and really look at each story, learn what we can, uh, dive a little deeper, and then allow the Holy Spirit to do uh, whatever work comes out of it. And this morning, I was thinking about it. I was uh, talking with my husband, Andy, just before. He looked at me, and he's like, are you cramming right now? Like cramming for a test with my notes? I was like, yeah, because I feel like some of the things that are on my heart this week don't all come in a pretty little package. There's no three points that all start with the same letter. It's not like that. It feels a little scattered, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit that there might be a nugget that's for you and one that's for you, one that's for you, and I just don't know. So it doesn't feel totally linear at the end, but that's because this parable actually is rich with layers that we want to sit in for a little while as we gather this morning. So If you weren't here last week, we did a bit more talk about the nature of prayer. Um, I encourage you, if you want to, to uh, listen to that online. If you have some questions about prayer or are frustrated in your own prayer life, uh, we talked more about prayer last week. But this is the second part of a two-part teaching that in Luke's account, they they go back to back. And so this is a continuation. And the arc of these two par- uh, parables is important because the, you know, the, I just told you the beauty of going deep into a small passage. The threat is that you lose the greater context that's around it. So we want to remind ourselves that everyone isn't here every week what a parable is, right? A parable is a certain type of story that is used to teach a deeper spiritual meaning. That's what a parable means. Um, there are some hints in the way that a parable is taught, that you are now no longer hearing an actual story, you are now entering a parable. We used the example last week. If I say, I was at the beach and I saw a mermaid talking to a unicorn, you'd think you need to call a doctor. But if I say, once upon a time I was at a beach, and I saw a unicorn talking to a mermaid, you would know we're in a whole different genre. So there's signposts that say we're now no longer talking literally, and I can hear with different ears. And so one of the things is um, the characters of a parable are designed to serve as archetypes of something else, a perfect representative of a group, so you learn a lot. Now, I'm going to grammar geek out just for a second, but it's going to be for a reason that you'll know later. So the difference between an archetype and a stereotype. Now, a stereotype, we try to avoid those, right? 
We don't want to say all lawyers are this or that, right? We know wonderful lawyers. That's not true. All doctors have bad handwriting. A stereotype is kind of a quick oversimplification, often negative, of a particular person or group. It's a stereotype, okay? But that's different than an archetype. With parables, the archetype is supposed to represent something and say a lot in a brief moment. An example in our language might be something more like this. If I said, I want to tell you the story about my friend Bob, it's a total Cinderella story. You right away would know Cinderella is the archetype of a rags to riches story. And so you know Bob's story is going to be similar to that, okay? Does that make sense, the difference between the two? Okay. Last week's parable, Jesus was talking about prayer and persistence and the promise that God's justice would come about. And he was calling his disciples as the surrounding group was asking about the future return of the Son of Man, the future kingdom. Jesus was teaching them, God will bring justice. Will you persist as people of prayer in the waiting, knowing that God's justice will come? And we had two characters, right, on opposite ends of the social privilege continuum. A judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought of him, and a widow who had no one to represent it. The ark type of vulnerability in society, these two opposite sides of the power spectrum, and Jesus goes right into persistence for justice, right? So now we're coming right off of that. I gave you that mini, there's the mini parable on that one, because this is just a continuation. We want to hold the lessons from last week going into this next one. As with the last one, remember last time, last week, uh, Luke teased it up for us, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And so that's where we can kind of accidentally read too fast and think, I already know the lesson because Luke told me. That's why we wanted to go deeper. Well, this week, he does the same thing beginning this one. 18.9, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So Luke has teed it up again. And we have two archetype characters here, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now remember, right away, those tell us something, like a Cinderella story, right? Or a widow. We know some things right away. So let me get our scripture out, and we're going to start. I am reading out of the NIV, which is the same one that Kat was reading out of. This is 18, 10 to 13. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I think that was his tone. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So let's start with our characters and why I brought up archetype versus stereotype. If we are someone who has read our Bibles or has heard some of these teachings from Jesus before, we can know very quickly, gosh, Jesus often calls out Pharisees as hypocrites and he scolds them publicly and doesn't seem to be a fan at all. So our stereotype is that Pharisees are legalistic hypocrites. They are just worried about following all of the rules, they aren't very thoughtful, and they sometimes just are like our hypocrites. They're not acting in ways that honor God, but they think that they're super cool. That's our stereotype based on reading a lot of the teachings of Jesus, the interactions that happen. That's a negative stereotype. 
And, and there's some truth to that, but we have to stop and set that aside for a minute. The original audience hearing this would not be thinking of all the teachings of Jesus where he'd been calling them out yet. They had huge respect for the Pharisees. A Pharisee was the archetype of piety, which is just a weird, funny to say word that means like committed observance to religious practices. Pharisees were respected in their community. They were so righteous and obedient and good and focused on the law of God. And so the archetype of this is this is a good, religious, righteous, pious person. That's the archetype. So we're going to just temporarily set aside our stereotype from some of the other teachings of Jesus. Because, of course, the tax collector is the polar opposite of that often looped in with sinners in scripture, right? Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Oh, the scandal. Like they're looped in the same. And the reason is they're the opposite of piety and respect in culture. These were Jewish people who went to work for the Roman Empire and who the Jews did not want to be under the rule of the Roman Empire. They went to work for them, so they were making income from them by gathering taxes from their community members to pay the empire. And we have reason to believe that sometimes, now I'm gonna get into a stereotype. So the archetype is, you're a traitor. I don't respect you, you're working for the enemy. And the stereotype was that they often sometimes even cheated, took a little off the top for themselves. If any of you have heard of the series, The Chosen, have you guys heard of that at all? Um, watch the one, I don't remember the name of it, but they, uh, it's Matthew, is a tax collector, and they show him like cowering in a wagon and hiding on his commute to work because he would have been so hated. So culturally, you want to get a feel for like a tax collector, um, that, I mean, that face, like you can watch that and get kind of an idea. So that's the archetype of these two. No respect from society and for good reason, like they are actively living a traitor's life by choice. So I want to pause for just a second and acknowledge something just in our own learning about scripture. The Pharisees are stand-ins for respected, devout people. Why does Jesus often call them out as hypocrites? Why is that happening? So here's my short version of what I think is important to understand about the Pharisees as a group. In order to follow the law, which they held in such high esteem, they added to the law, especially when it concerned with when it came to practices like hand washing and food laws, but also spiritual disciplines, what we would call spiritual disciplines like tithing, you know, generosity, right? Or fasting. These are good practices, but they added a lot of laws to help us stay in the law, okay? Does that make sense? A modern equivalent, we know uh, the call to Sabbath right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. And we are supposed to rest, hold it apart, keep it holy. In our modern day world, would that mean, I, okay, so maybe I can't cook, but can I reheat food from yesterday in the microwave, or does that count? They would make up laws like that to fill in. If the Pharisees were operating today, and the rule was wash your hands, I think they would have been the one who made up the rule about the happy birthday song two times. Like that's how they, they added to the rules. To, I, I can trust their motivations were good. These are not evil people. They just added to the law. And so when Jesus is talking to them, 
Remember, Jesus doesn't abolish any of the law. Jesus could have been more strict or conservative or whatever the word is than the Pharisees. He's doing something different. He's saying, no, don't add to the law. Get to the heart of the law. Out of Matthew, uh, in a section of scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount, a long series of teaching, Jesus says this about our relationship with him and the law. He says this, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, and this is the verse that's gonna mean a lot for our talk today, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that sounds scary with what we're talking about, right? Because this Pharisee is standing here celebrating his righteousness. More righteous than a Pharisee? Yes, yes, in the heart. Understanding the heart of what the law is about. So the Pharisees strictly followed their added rules and they felt really good about that. And he was probably right to say he was really righteous. He's probably actually right. But it led to a heart that was a heart of superiority. It was a heart of awesomeness of self that was not following what the heart of Jesus would have been about when he's surrounded by people who need grace who probably need food, who need uh, compassion, who need stuff. And he is in his own tower of piety, celebrating that he's hanging out in that tower of piety. That's where his heart is. Jesus is about the heart of the law, loving God and loving others, right? Sums that up. So what Jesus would teach uh, coming out of this passage, he said, listen, the law says don't murder. I say don't even hate. The law says don't commit adultery. I say don't even lust. Get to the heart of what the law is about. I want to teach you something different. So I think the way I would say it is that Jesus is after a healed and whole heart. He's not adding to the law. He's deepening our understanding. He's going so deep to understand God's heart behind the law. And that heart is for wholeness and flourishing, not only of individuals, but of communities living this way of life together. Restoration, that's the heart. But this specific Pharisee seems to be carrying his righteousness before God with pride. And Luke teed it up for us to see that right away, right? Luke said, here is this guy confident in his righteousness, looking down on everyone else. So we already see that tone before we read his words. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Okay, so this part really gets me, right? He's praying out loud, his words are recorded, and he's even specifying the tax collector like him, and not like him right there. I'm not like that one. Can you imagine, like socially, awkward moment in my imagination that this would do this thing. If I sat here right now and was like, thank you that I'm not awful like Andy and you're all hearing me, like Andy's wonderful. But you know what I mean? Like that would be so awkward. Like, oh my gosh, we all just heard that and that was really awkward. So I just feel like the awfulness of this. So he's praying it in front of everybody including the tax collector. He just dissed publicly, he's praying this. And you notice this in this parable. 
Both the Pharisee and the tax collector are standing off, the Pharisee by himself and the tax collector far off. But you get the sense the Pharisee is doing it because of his set-apartness, probably to not be contaminated by those filthy people he just named around him, the unclean, sorry, not filthy, religiously unclean people surrounding him. He's standing apart kind of that way. And you get the sense the tax collector is because, well, you see how people thought about tax collectors. He probably is just shunned. So his is isolation. Yet the one who stands far off from God is the one who is brought near. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Beating the breast is a sign of of grief, of lament, um, remorse, grief, all of that. So I, uh, I did this little thing that I do sometimes. It, there's something new. They're not cliff notes anymore. What are they now? Did you guys know cliff notes, like the summary bo- version of the book? There's something else that it's called now. I did the cliff notes of New Testament scholarship on Pharisees by texting Scott McKnight. And I was like, hey, give me like the three-minute version, right? So we got in this conversation about him, and I took like all of his scholarship and just cliff noted it. By the way, I also used it as an opportunity to invite him to come and teach, and he's coming in a couple of weeks. So we're really excited for that again. It's really fun when he comes visit us. Um, but anyway, he sent me, um, he's like, hey, well, what are, you, what are you preaching on? I told him, and he sent me the, um, one of his, I should look at his real name. Uh, it's the New Testament Everyday Bible Study on Luke. It's actually a great resource. I think there's a whole series of them. Um, And I read the passage on this one. You guys, I have to just confess, I was like immediately convicted, which is the problem of reaching out and getting a resource and then it comes and you're like, I did it. I did exactly what he just said. So here's the hook, according to Dr. McKnight. Here's the hook. Did you not look down on the Pharisee for his priggish self-righteousness? If so, you are the Pharisee, as characterized in this parable. My bets are you identified with the second character. After all, he's approved by acting The exact way as the first, the Pharisee. 100% I did that. I was like, can you believe he did that? He's awful. I did the exact same thing. So that's the hook of this parable. So if this is so, whether or not you identify that way, the point of the parable is we need to learn to approach God on the basis of our own, our unworthiness, and on the basis of God's good graciousness, not on the basis of our merits. Be honest. Confess your sins, including your self-righteousness at times. So here's the piece where I started to feel like I'm kind of all over the place with which direction I'm going to go. I have a couple different thoughts that really have been on my heart this week in talking about this. And we're going to start by going through those two things that uh, were just written. So first, the be honest part. Like I read this and I had to be honest. I completely was full of judgment towards the Pharisees' judgment. I was. And there's a story that I read in one of the other commentators. He's like, there's this great story of a Sunday school teacher who did a wonderful job teaching this parable and ended with a prayer that said, thank you, God, that we have your word and this church so that we will not be like the Pharisee. And you hear that and you're like, huh? And then you do the same thing to the teacher. I did. I was like, yeah, the teacher totally did that thing, which just keeps the cycle going of me saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like that teacher who did that thing, right? So the cycle just keeps going. And we have to be honest because it happens all the time. Andy and I had, uh, we were sitting out on a, um, an outdoor deck uh, the other afternoon and we were, I was like, oh my gosh, the weeds in these window boxes are out of control. He's like, that's a weed? I thought it was a bush. I'm like, no, that is a weed. And he was like, well, look at us judging because we just pulled the weeds out of our window boxes and replanted them two days ago. And I was like, oh, you're totally right. I was window box judging. And so 
I'm just saying, like, we all do it. So the first thing to do is be honest. The likelihood of having the self-comparison mindset, the judging mindset of the Pharisee is real. I just confessed two of them in a row to you from this week alone for me. We have to be honest in order to have a good assessment of our own heart. So that's the first thing. And then the next thing I want to talk about is the confess your sins. So this is a parable. If the last parable was about being persistent in prayer for justice, this parable includes a right teaching on confession. The parable invites us to look into something deep in the heart of ourselves, that's the be honest, and then turn it to God so that we can be healed of it. And so we do not accidentally start thinking of our goodness and praising God and all of a sudden becoming even proud in our following God. Like that wouldn't make, we wouldn't want to, but we have to be honest and we have to confess when we do something that has transformed our heart in a way towards boasting or judgment or anything. So this is what, so this is the words of Jesus, first of all. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. That means forgiven, fully righteous and redeemed before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Here's what I have to say. I think sometimes in confession, we sort of have that image in our head of like a confessional and a scary person behind a curtain, like a human, and you have to go in and you have to like be very shamed and it's scary and it's dark and somebody made you go and do it against your will. Like that's the image that we have about what confession means. And and that's not what confession is. You guys see this gift? This man said, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus' words are, he is fully justified. Fully. It's done. As far as the east is from the west, confession means that we're aware enough to be covered in the grace that's already freely been given. We just have to be aware enough in order to bring it forward and allow that healing grace to come. Because the gift of confession, the gift when we confess is complete and immediate restoration. He went home justified before God, in right standing with God. So I want us to be healthy in our understanding of the beauty of the gift of what confession is and what comes on the other side. And then the last thing that we want to look at here is this great reversal of righteousness. Luke centers a lot on this idea of great reversal, right? The low will be exalted and the the high will be humbled, right? This is what kingdom ethic is. First will be last, lost will be found. Luke focuses a lot on this part of Jesus's teaching, which as an author, it means to me like this really hit as so beautiful and profound to Luke. He wanted to share this part of this great reversal teaching. And so the interesting thing, if we look at this great reversal of righteousness, is that the Pharisee actually isn't asking God for anything. He's just given God an FYI about how awesome his righteousness is. He is asked for nothing and he receives nothing from God. The other one, the tax collector comes and acknowledges his need and is given complete compassion and restoration. That's the great reversal. The one who seems to have it all asks for nothing and gets nothing and the one who is lowly and downtrodden asks for something that seems so far-fetched, you guys. And he's given the full thing, 100%. Fully totally restoration. One of the reasons I want to bring this up specifically in this, um, this is the part that started to feel a little like maybe not for everyone. I've just acknowledged, I've seen a pattern with several people in, who've been in church for a long time who, um, 
who've been damaged by this language of righteousness, sinfulness, shame. You know, the way, here's why I want to say it. You know the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wreck like me? They hear this wretchedness. They hear this, you are a sinner saved by grace. And the sin and the wretchedness is the part that really hooks somewhere in their heart as being a truth. And they're relatively good people. I mean, we all fall short, right? I already confessed a few to you just this morning. Like, we all fall short. But it doesn't mean we're all tax collectors. Some really need that fullness of restoration. I'm not, we just, we don't rank. So this is why I'm fumbly. Because I'm not talking about ranking sin. I'm just saying that some relatively like God-honoring people who are doing that heart check and coming before God, they still carry a weight and they can't receive the amazing grace, how sweet the sound, because all they can hear is you are a wretch, you are a sinner. And they carry in their body and in their narrative a shame that tells them that they should not ever feel holy, righteous, and redeemed because they just think it's wrong of them to not ever know that they're a wretch and they're a sinner. Am I making sense right now? I know of people who've been really damaged by this. If this doesn't make sense to you, you can just shut me out for a minute. Um, So this is the thing I would say. There is some kind of a messaging here where um, people walk in shame because even relatively good people have the drumbeat in their ear that they're awful, 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 and they can't hear the message of "You're, you're saved. Jesus made a path. It is done. And so they bear a shame and actually feel sinful if they drop their sin at the foot of the cross. They actually feel like it is their, their lot in life to then go pick it back up and say, but I'm, but I'm still sinful. And it's super hard for these individuals who have, been, have borne that message in a certain way to ever feel the release of confession and grace. And I don't know what to say about that except that's a lie of the enemy. And that I would pray with you and for you that by the grace of God, you could know the finished part of that story and no longer bear in your body the shame that has come from a message that only halfway sat and dug deep roots. There's there's another part that bears fruit that undoes the, the other part, if that makes sense. Okay, if that doesn't make sense to you, then now you should start listening again because we're just done talking about that. But it is a truth for some people, and I want in Jesus' name for them to be set free from the constant message that shame is the biggest mark on their life because that's not how the grace of Christ works. It's just not. So what I want to point out for all of us here in this parable isn't about having a measuring stick of how righteous you are. The point we want to emphasize and the truth for all of you, including those struggling under shame, is not how righteous you are, it's whose righteousness do you bear. And it's not your own. Even if you're a really good person or if you're a really awful person, if you follow Jesus... It's not how righteous are you, it's whose righteousness do you bear. Paul in his letter, to the second letter in the church in Corinth says this, um, he's talking about reconciliation. This would be another way to consider like righteousness, justified before God, all these words that we've been saying this morning, he's talking about that reconciliation work. Paul writes this uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, starting in 17. Therefore, if anyone is in, start again, therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, that means if you're following Jesus, if you've accepted Jesus as Savior, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. That's like our role as church to share this message. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's the status we've been given. Live in that status. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to consider that language. In Christ, we become the very righteousness of God. A scholar and theologian who's also a friend, Cherith Fee Nordling, came and uh, was giving a talk to our staff one day, and she said it like this. If you're an imagination person, she said it this way. She's like, you what you do. Don't, it's not about, right, the goal here. It's not about how righteous are you. It's whose righteousness do you bear? She said this. It's like as if as you stand before the Father, Christ literally is embracing you with like a blanket, a covering of his own grace and love. And so when the Father looks at you, he literally sees Christ's righteousness. That's what the Father sees. The very righteousness of Christ has covered you. That's what you bear before the Father's throne. And the Pharisee stood before the Father celebrating how righteous he was. And the tax collector cried out that he needed mercy. So we no longer consider how righteous we are. We will be shaped in righteousness as we follow the way of Jesus. By the way, this does not just mean like we can keep being a tax collector, right? Like we, we get shaped and we see every day in our walk, we grow in this righteousness, more, more righteous even than the Pharisees, right? That was Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount. This work comes as we allow ourselves to be shaped by the way of Jesus, following the way of Jesus, but we bear the very righteousness of Christ as we walk following after him. And so as we continue on this morning, I think that's the question I want us to consider. What does it look like to be humble enough to not measure how righteous we are uh, in comparison, like the Pharisee, right? There's, this is not a comparison. We don't all have like barometers over our heads on how righteous we are. That would be awful. We get to view each other wherever we are as people who are covered in the grace of Jesus. That's why Jesus came. It is the delight of God to give this gift of righteousness, and it's in a way that we could never maintain on our own. So we don't put on a measuring stick on ourselves or on other people. And so there's no room to judge how righteous are you? You, me, you, who's, who's where on this chart? We don't do that. We can't do that. We sing and celebrate because of whose righteousness we bear, the righteousness of Jesus. We bear the righteousness of Jesus, the very righteousness of God through Christ. In him, we become the righteousness of God and join in that ministry of reconciliation that Paul was talking about.
And so um, I want to um, actually uh, plagiarize, but I'm not because I'm going to give credit. Kat prayed this morning over us in the 9 a.m. room a beautiful prayer that I thought of um, that I want to pray over us. She said uh, something to the effect of like, as we enter in to do these practices, right, our giving, uh, if we're fasting, if we're praying, if we're singing, all of the practices we do, those are good things. Like for the Pharisee, like the things he was doing were good. But what her prayer was, I pray over us, that we would enter into those with delight and curiosity, not shame and regulations. That's our heart here, that we would still engage in these practices that are good and honoring, but they would come from a place of delight and curiosity at what the Lord might do in and through us and not have them rooted in shame or regulation. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.